Well, good morning. It's good to be with you on this Sunday morning. Our scripture passage this morning is going to come again from the book of James as we carry on in our series there. And we'll be looking at James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And as you turn there, your Bible will probably have some title above James 3, and it'll say something about the tongue, maybe taming the tongue. And it would be fair to ask that in five chapters in James, why does James spend so much time talking about our tongues? He's talking about our, our tongues in the sense of our words, the things we speak. And you might ask, why in all of the things in our world, all of the problems that you and I have as we work out our faith, why does he spend so much time talking about our mouth? And some of you may kind of know the answer, because our, our tongues are, are very important. They matter. Our words matter. Why all this bother about words? Well, James will tell us that our words, not only do they matter, but they carry great weight. And then whether you're five years old or 75 this morning, our words matter and how we use them. So with that in mind, with that hope that we would know how to use our words well, would we stand this morning for the reading of God's word, taken from James chapter 3. Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison." With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Would you guide us and instruct us in it? Lord, would you show us what we need to hear? Would we be convicted and also pointed to the hope that we have, that our, our, our words matter? And would you show us that? Would you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What happens when you don't know what a word means? What do you do? And maybe this happens to you. And a long time ago, maybe you were diligent and you pulled out a dictionary from a shelf. Uh, now you might just say, I'm just not going to know what that means. Or maybe you, you Google it or, or something like that. But think for a moment, and I know it's Sunday morning, but we're going to talk about dictionaries just for a moment. Uh, the, the most respected English dictionary is the Oxford English Dictionary. And it's not just a bunch of sort of British elites that wrote this thing. Uh, it took 70 years to write this dictionary. Think about that, 70 years to write a dictionary. Because what they were doing is they weren't just trying to say, well, what does this word mean? But they were trying to trace the, the history of the word, where the word came from. 
And so this dictionary, if you've ever seen it, is not like your normal little dictionary that you hold in one hand. It's 20 volumes, and they're big, thick volumes. It goes on and on. 70 years of writing this. And you, you might imagine the people that started writing this dictionary thought initially it was only going to take them a couple years. And then they realized they were halfway through A, and it had been like a decade. And so what did they do? They recruited the entire English-speaking population to help them write this dictionary. And so maybe you know this story. There are books written about writing a dictionary, believe it or not. And if you read these books, what you'll see is that they sent these advertisements out to sort of all the papers, all the universities, and said, would you help us write this dictionary? And people around the world started writing little four-by-six cards of the usages of words as they found them. So as they were reading books, they'd say, this book uses the word this way in this time period, and, and they'd go back and forth. We won't go into all the, the detail. I want to highlight one person, though. The American who contributed the most to this dictionary spent 11 years contributing these little four-by-six cards and mailing them to Oxford. Uh, he was a Presbyterian minister, as would happen, and uh, he wrote 43,055 little cards and sent them across to Oxford. Now, why do I bring that up? Imagine the dedication that that all took, the 70 years, the countless people that were involved. I bring that up to say that, that words matter. If people were going to dedicate their lives to this creation of a dictionary, words matter. And that's really the point that James is hammering home, that our words matter, not in the sense of technical dictionary definitions, but words matter for our our, our body of believers, how we treat one another. But you all know the stories of you know, politicians, professors, uh, even pastors who have used their words uh, in ways that are less than wise. Um, we just survey the news and we've seen that in the last months. Words used imprudently lead to consequences. And it's really easy to read the book of James and say, yeah, words matter. But what's interesting is that James's point is not about other people's words. They're about our words, my words and, and your words. And if you see in your bulletin, our, our outline this morning uh, is trying to highlight that, that it is not somebody else's words or words in general, but it's my words and your words that really matter and carry great weight. You know what it's like to be encouraged by words, to have somebody's words lift you up in their tone, in their showing of love, their care, but you also know what it's like to have words hurt. Whether intentionally or inadvertently, words can cut very deeply with harshness, with lying, with gossip. All of those things are, are summed up there. And so what James is asking us to do here is to learn to speak in ways that are not sinful. To learn to speak in ways that are not sinful. As we saw at the very end of the passage, he talks about sinful words, and he says, brothers, this should not be. Members of the church, this is not how our words should be, should be used. So how do we do this? How do we begin to use our words well? Well, it begins, James begins by considering the good potential of our tongues to direct us, that there's something about our words that have a, an innate power to direct us towards what is good. James has already talked about, the, his, about words in the book of James. Earlier, he's told us that we should be slow to speak, slow to speak. We should be prudent with our words. He's also said that the person who can, can bridle their tongue, who can control their tongue, keeps themselves from being polluted by the world, being stained by the world. There's something really powerful and significant about the tongue. We'll come back to verse 1 in a moment, but first verse 2 has this for us. It says, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, 
Now, we hear stumbling and we think maybe mishap or accident. There's an intentionality behind stumbling here. It's not just a, oh, sorry, I, I made a mistake. It's, it's intentional. It's deliberate, deliberative. And in this sense, he says, we stumble in many ways, but particularly with our words. We make mistakes with our words. We, we sin with our words. We say things we shouldn't say with our words. So much so that he says, if you can bridle your tongue, if you can control your tongue, you're a perfect person. That perfect there is a sense of maturity, a sense of fully growing, somebody who is well-disciplined and self-controlled and morally upright. In a sense, what he's saying is the tongue is so difficult to control that if you can control your tongue, everything else is easier. And you're going to be able to have enough self-discipline to control your actions and the things that you do. If you can bridle your tongue, you've mastered your body. And so he gives these illustrations of this. Even more so, he gives these pictures of a horse and a ship. You probably have heard these before, but it's, it's interesting to, to slow down a little bit and actually think about these. Um, we're in Texas, right? People, some of y'all have horses. And you know that a horse is controlled. A horse is large, right? These are large animals. They're not insignificant. They have great power. And they're controlled by just a little bridle, a little bit in their mouth. That's the first image. The second one is of a, of a ship. Same idea. A large vessel, not as big, you know, in James's day as we have ships now, but these large vessels that a small rudder controls. And you know what happens if a ship loses their rudder. They're, they're, they're powerless. There's no hope. The ship's gone. But in the second illustration, James highlights something important. There's something not just, in the, the, not just the horse and not just the ship, but there's somebody behind those things, right? If the ship is the body and the tongue is the rudder, then there's also the pilot who is us, the one who controls the tongue, the one who is behind it. And that's really what James is, is illustrating, that there is a power behind these things, and this tongue then directs the life of the person, the body of the person, in the way that it goes. And so in verse 5, he says, so the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. And that boast there, most of us hear boasting, we say, oh, it's bad. But really what James is saying is the tongue is powerful, both for good and, and for evil. But the tongue is actually powerful in how it steers our life and directs the way that we go. And we know the power of rudders, right? Remember the uh, incident, I think it's 2021, right, in the Suez Canal? Maybe we followed that with some humor, right? Remember that ship that got stuck? The Ever Given, this large container ship, tried to make it through the Suez Canal, and it, it didn't make it. There were crosswinds, and this massive ship sort of got marooned, so to speak, on the side of the canal for six days. And I was reminded of that this week as I was looking at this text. And I, I went back to look to see if they ever figured out, you know, what, what happened, whose fault it was. Um, the rudder didn't fail. There was no technological difficulties. You know what the problem was? Humans. Human error caused the problem. There were some foolish decisions made where the weather conditions weren't good, some precautions weren't taken, and so they said, we're just going to go for it. And we all know what happened. Um, all of the complications there, all of the, the havoc, because the one directing the tongue, directing the body, didn't do what they were called to do. And this is what James is reminding us, that our tongue has a great power. It boasts of great things. And so, circling back to verse 1, it makes sense that he says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. The point here is that words have power to direct. 
and so those who teach, and in James's context here, teaching is one of a formal position, one who is tasked with relaying doctrine to the next generation, so to speak, in a new world where no one is, is sure exactly what all this Christianity is about. Those who are teaching are to be those who know they will be judged with a greater strictness because our words matter because it is important and that words have power to direct us in a certain way. And so as we get through this first few verses, we know that our words matter. Think about that in terms of the way you use words. Now, all of us use words every day. You've probably used some today. And you've talked to people. How do you talk to the people in your life? I know it's a really obvious sort of low question, but think about it. How do you talk to the people in your life? If you're a parent, how do you talk to your kids? Do you talk with encouragement? Do you talk um, in a way that brings shame? If you're an employer, if you talk to your employees, how do you talk to them? With encouragement or with disdain? And we can go through all those various aspects of our life, whether we're a student, a teacher, friend, coworker, church member to church member. How do we speak to one another? Our words matter. They are not without significance. And as we think about that, two questions to help us understand this. The first is, where is your tongue steering you? Where is your tongue steering you? If you look at the text, there's this reality that even though there's a pilot behind the, the rudder, it's the rudder that he really focuses on and its power to sort of move us. And what I mean by that is if you use your words in a certain way, your heart begins to follow. Think of it this way. We, uh, we tend, as people, to like to, to judge other people. I think that's a fair observation. Not verbally necessarily, not in front of those people, but we like to, to have our thoughts and our judgments about people. And a lot of us, uh, I was talking to somebody after the first, first service uh, and used the language as we were talking, we're good at, at first-degree tongue control, but not second-degree tongue control. What do we mean by that? We're good at controlling our tongues when we're talking to somebody. When you say, oh, zip my lip, I'm not going to say that. But then what do we do? We find somebody safe. We find somebody who agrees with us. And then we say it all. And James is saying, brothers, that ought not to be. Our tongues, as we'll see in a moment, are a, are a fire. They wreck havoc. And in that way, our tongues can, can move us and move our hearts and our affections towards those people in a way that is negative and judgmental. Maybe another way we do this, um, thinking through social media. That is a, a form of using our tongues, our keyboard tongues, but we're using our, our tongues, the things we read. And, and you don't have to nod or agree to this, but, but think of this. How often have you seen something on, on the, the news, social media, and you say, I don't know if that's quite right. But then maybe that's not quite true. But then later that day, you're in a conversation with somebody, and it's just too juicy not to sort of say it's true. It's especially true on social media. We're guilty of that, aren't we? And what, what, what that does is that our tongues then direct us to validate untruth instead of the truth that our tongues are designed to speak. So in that way, our tongues can steer you. Also, our tongues can steer us positively in love. When you say positive things about people, when you express love and empathy and care for them, our, our hearts follow those words. And so there's a power for our tongues positively to steer us towards what is good. The other question we need to ask is, where is your tongue steering others? Now, James, in this context, is talking about teachers and their lungs, are their tongues steering somebody? But all of us have uh, the use of our words in ways that will teach others, that will instruct them. 
whether it's a spouse, whether it's a coworker, whether it's a child, our words can direct other people. Where are we speaking with grace and truth to direct and steer others towards what is right, true, and beautiful? All of this, what James is asking us to do is to tame our tongues. Tame our tongues. It's fun to say. It's far more difficult to do. So much so that in verse 8, he'll say, no one can do this. And that's a tension even as we hear this, this text, isn't it? In part, all of us will say, I want to use my words better. I want to steer people towards what is good. I want to steer away from what is, what is evil. And then we also realize this tension of we can't do this. This is difficult. No one can tame the tongue. Come back to that in a moment, but let's look at verse 5 and following where it talks about our tongues, my tongue's fallen nature and its ability to bring devastation. Now, some of us might hear this so far and say, I get it, words are important, um, but I don't insult anybody. I haven't intentionally lied in 40 years, uh, so I'm, I'm sort of good on this. I'm sort of set. I don't need to really think about this too much. And this is where James pokes at that just a bit, pulls it back and says, no, all of us need to consider our tongues. Verse 5, the second half of it, says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And again, James uses these simple but very uh, large images, ones that are very helpful for us to think through. We all know the power of fires, right? If you've been around in North America in the last decade, you know the destructive power of a forest fire. And the cause of them is often very mundane. Somebody didn't put a fire out. Somebody was careless. Somebody did one small action that led to catastrophe. And James isn't being hyperbolic here. He's not exaggerating when he says that the tongue is really a fire. It can bring about great damage. And I think many of us know that intuitively because we've been damaged by other people's tongues. Or we've seen the damage our tongues have caused. An errant word, a foolish comment that we thought was funny, but it wasn't. We wanted to say it, we shouldn't have. All of those things are are what James has in mind, so much so that he says in verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. That's a huge phrase, a world of unrighteousness. What he's saying is our tongue has the capacity, the potential to do all evil. It is a world of unrighteousness. It's not just part of it, but it has the entirety of unrighteousness able to be expressed, so much so that it is said among our members, staining the whole body. Remember, James says we're to be unstained by the world, but here our tongue is with its world of unrighteousness, staining the body, setting on fire the entire course of life, every part of life, the ups and downs, the whole cycle of life is what is envisioned here, the unintended consequences of our words running their course and bringing damage, so much so that it is set on fire by hell. James doesn't really explain that last part, how it's set on fire by hell, but he's saying that the devil delights in our words when they bring the destruction that they can bring. Set on fire by hell, a desire to see evil go forward, this world of unrighteousness in our tongues. And we see this throughout Scripture, not to to, to press us down too much, but we know that in Romans it talks about our lips being unclean of an unbeliever, dripping with deadly poison. And we hear that and we say, okay, that's just a a nice picture to kind of make a point. But that's what James is is really pushing us to consider, the destructive potential and power of our words, a deadly poison. We need to know this this destruction. 
Many of us uh, absolve ourselves of our words by this, this phrase. It's our, our, it's our favorite phrase. I misspoke. I misspoke. It's a good political PR campaign, but we know it's not true. When we say it, oftentimes we know that maybe we meant more than we, sh- than we realized. And so whether we've used our words to sort of escalate com- uh, conversations, whether we've been uh, ugly with our words, whether we've stormed into an interaction too quickly with our words written or spoken, we know what James is saying here. Amy Carmichael, the missionary in India, had a helpful uh, way of dealing with gossip and lying in her community, uh, and she had this rule. I think it's a prudent one. As she worked with other missionaries, their rule together as they lived together was this, the absent one must be safe among us. The absent one must be safe among us. It's a prudent safeguard on what James is describing here. If we don't talk about the person who is absent in a way that is negative, it leads to what is good and right and doesn't lead to this destruction. It doesn't mean that we're not honest with our words. It doesn't mean we just sort of cover up everything with pleasant niceties. But it does mean that we are true with our words, that we are generous and kind and loving with how we speak. Think of it this way. Sometimes we need to have sort of our our minds expanded in terms of how much our words can, can do, or the, the range of sins. Our, our Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, which is part of uh, what we believe as a, as a church in our documents, our confession, it has this response to the Ninth Commandment, where we're not to sort of uh, treat our neighbor's name poorly. And it lists a whole bunch of things in ways that we do this. And I'm just going to read some of them. There are a lot. Here are some of them. These are ways that we have not cared about our neighbor with our words. By lying, by concealing the truth, by undue silence, by speaking the truth unseasonably, slandering, backbiting, detracting, scoffing, flattering, thinking too highly or lowly of ourselves or others, breaking our promises, profane joking, gossip, slander, not defending the good of our neighbor. It's a partial list, but it's a convicting one. It's one that exposes the destructive power of our tongue. So it makes sense that in verse 8, James says, but no human being can tame the tongue. So what what does that mean? Are we at an impasse? And James has given this this great advice, and then he says, no one can tame the tongue. Well, it's interesting. If if you read around James's day, there were people that were talking like James. James wasn't the first person to say, your words matter. And if you read sort of the, the people in James's day, they would say, your words matter. They'd even use some of the illustrations James, James used, and then they'd say, you should try harder. Because if you're really virtuous and you really work at it, then you can tame your tongue. James is unique in that he comes out and says, no human can tame the tongue. Now, what do we do? Do we just all leave in depression and say, oh, this is what we're resigned to? No. Very early on, the church read this and began to realize what James was, was getting at, that no human being can tame the tongue. And the sense of stress there, no human being. Augustine was one of the first to, to document this view, and he realized what James was getting at is that although no human can tame the tongue, God can tame the tongue, that there is hope for us. As we humble ourselves before God, He is the one who lifts us up. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So there is hope for us that we can use our tongues well. It comes not from outside of us, but from in us as we are renewed and changed by God. What James is doing is he's really building off what Jesus said about our words. 
Remember Matthew 12, where he says this, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's where James will go in these last verses. Really, he's saying, no one can tame the tongue, and then he goes to look inside the person to see what comes out of them, whether they are true inside, whether there has been a change in them. That's what James is, is driving home, that we need some help. Our tongue has a redeemed purpose. And as we trust in God, and we'll talk more about this as we get into these last verses, as we trust in God, there is this real reality that he changes us and he transforms us. That doesn't mean that our, our talking becomes perfect. It doesn't mean that all of our, our words are somehow radically new, but it does mean that as we trust in God, there is a real change. Because our words are not designed for this destruction, but they're designed to bring life. Think for a moment with me about how God created our, our ability to speak. And maybe you've had a family member or you personally have had a speech impediment, difficulty talking, and you know the, the work and the care that it takes to sort of retrain uh, the mouth how to speak. One author, uh, his name is Bill Bryson, has written a book recently on the body, and in that book he has a chapter on the mouth, and he talks about how intricately it is made. Now, Bill Bryson, as far as I know, is not a, not a believer, but I'm going to read a quote from his book that talks about the intricacy of design the intricacy of how God created us to speak. He says this, What is certain is that the capacity of speech requires a delicate and coordinated balance of tiny muscles, ligaments, bones, and cartilage of exactly the right length, tautness, and positioning in order to expel microbursts of modulated air in just the right measures. The tongue, teeth, and lips must also be nimble enough to take these throaty breezes and turn them into nuanced phomones. That's quite a tall order. To put it mildly, it isn't just a big brain that allows us to speak, but an exquisite arrangement of anatomy. Now, if God went to that care to create us with the ability to speak, which is a miracle, that we can open our mouths and expel air in a way that is intelligible to one another, then he had a good purpose for it. And that's what James turns to in these last verses, God's good purpose for our redeemed tongues, our redeemed purpose. How are we to use the tongue? Verse 9 gives us some instruction. He says that with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Now, one positive, one negative. With it we bless the Lord. That is what we are to use our mouths for, to bring blessing to God to Lord the Father, Jesus, God the Father, all of that envision there, to bless him is to praise him, to ascribe to his name what is true. That's how we're to use our words. But if we look at the negative instruction, we also get some, some guidance where it says, with it we curse, and this should not be, verse 10. We shouldn't curse those who are made in God's likeness. So what should we do then? We should also bless them. Our words are to be used powerfully and productively to bless both God and his creation. That's why God made all that intricate stuff we just read about, so that we could bless one another, that we could lift up one another with, his, with words. James gives some illustrations here at the end that are somewhat ridiculous in their, their nature because they're so obviously wrong. Does a spring, verse 11, pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? A spring is to give life. It's to be beneficial to all those around. And if a spring is good, it doesn't have sort of a mix of bad and good water. It's, it's all one or the other. Similarly, in verse 12, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? 
They're intended to be ridiculous. There's no way that would happen. And so he's saying, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that it's, it's the pure heart that James has in mind, that the overflow of the heart speaks from. Now, what does this mean? We might hear this, and, and there's sort of a, something that happens in our minds where we say, well, my words are, are mixed at best. They're neither always fully pure, and sometimes they're a little salty. What is, what is James talking about with me? James's point here is that in those moments where our, our tongues don't align with our new creation status, we should go to God and repent. When our tongues don't match the fact that we are new creations, we go and, and repent. One commentator, Dan Doriani, put it this way, our speech only fitfully adorns our profession of faith. We are not totally new, but we are genuinely new. And that's what James is reminding us here, is that we truly are new, and as new creations, we should live out that reality, that the, what flows out of us should be the, the fresh goodness of a spring of water and not the saltiness that is described here. That's what we get to do, that real change is, is actually possible. Think of this, there is, there is gospel hope Think of the book of Romans for a moment. We mentioned earlier that in Romans 3, it talks about our, our tongues dripping with deadly poison. Now, what do those same mouths do in chapter 10 of Romans? It says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you'll be saved. The only way that happens is through God's transforming grace. The only way that our deadly poison tongues move to, to tongues that confess and praise God is through His grace. And so nothing changes in the book of, of James. When we come to it, we say, our tongues must be made new. We must humble ourselves and pray that our tongues, our lips, would be transformed. And we can have real hope that that happens. In fits and starts, not perfectly all the time, but we can be made new through the gospel. So what do we do with this? There may be two ways that you're tempted to go. One is to say nothing ever again. I'm just going to not say anything. And sometimes that's prudent. The other way, you might say, I'm going to go and use my words in the most impactful way I possibly ever can. I'm going to go give the next speech. You know those famous speeches? I was thinking about some of them this week. These lines that live with us, right? Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Maybe, and, and that's a, that example of, of words being used constructively for good things. Maybe we, we say, I'm going to do that with my words. I think what James is asking us is, is somewhere in the middle, somewhere in the middle, and somewhat more connected to our actual daily lives. Two applications. James is asking us to bless the Lord and to bless all humans made in His image. How do we bless the Lord? Well, we pray. We give thanks to Him. Think about something. This is, this is very mundane, but it's very practical. When you thank God for your food, you are doing exactly what God created your mouth to do. Perfectly, completely. When you say, God, thank you for my food. That's what our tongues are intended to do, to bless God. When we sing, even in the rest of the service, we are using our mouths exactly as God intended them to do. We bless the Lord. And so, so think of that. Connect that with what you do, because as we begin to realize that that is a true and good use of our tongues, what does the tongue do? It directs our heart to thankfulness, to love, to praise. How do we bless one another? Second application. Think of how simple it is to encourage somebody. A simple word to say, I love you. A simple word to see somebody doing something and say, you're good at that, and God created you that way, to be good at that. As a parent, you can say that to your child. As a five-year-old, you can say that to your friend. 
And those are lasting blessing of words. And so think whether it's a text, a call, an email, a letter that you could write or send that would be a blessing to somebody. James isn't asking us to be passive and just wait for the next time to use our words well, but to be proactive and use our words in ways that bring honor and glory to God so that we gain a fluency in this new language of the gospel. We should be fluent with words that bless each other. And James, through the power of the Spirit, says that this is is possible to us. When we fail, the gospel is there. As we humble ourselves, he will lift us up. And through the power of the Spirit, we can use our words well to bless God and his creation all the while trusting his transforming grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words, these words of truth. Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you use them? We feel the weight of this passage. We feel the reality that no one can tame the tongue. And so we come to you and say, Lord, would you tame our tongue? And through your power and through your grace, would we live as those who bring life with our words? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.